begin this morning by reading to you basically the Bible in a nutshell through the eyes of a child, okay? In the beginning, which occurred near the start, there was nothing but God, darkness, and some gas. Bible says, the Lord thy God is one, but I think he must be a lot older than that. Anyway, God said, give me a light, and someone did. Then God made the world. Remember, this is through the eyes of a child. He split the Adam and made Eve. <laughs> Adam and Eve were naked, and they weren't embarrassed because mirrors hadn't been invented yet. Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating one bad apple, so they were driven from the Garden of Eden. Not sure what they were driven in, though, because they didn't have cars yet. Adam and Eve had a son, Cain, who hated his brother as long as he was able. And pretty soon, all of the early people died off, except for Methuselah, who lived to be like a million or something. And one of the next important people was Noah, who was a good guy, but one of his kids was kind of a ham. Noah built a large boat and put his family on some, and some animals on it, and he asked some other people to join him, but they said they would have to take a rain check. <laughs> After Noah came, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was more famous than his brother Esau because Esau sold Jacob his birthmark in exchange for some pot roast. Jacob had a son named Joseph who wore a really loud sports coat. Another important Bible guy is Moses, whose real name was Charlton Heston. <laughs> Moses led the Israelites, Israel lights, out of Egypt and away from the evil Pharaoh after God sent ten plagues on Pharaoh's people. These plagues included frogs, mice, lice, bowels, and no cable. God fed the Israelites every day with manicotti. <laughs> then he gave them his top 10 commandments. These include don't lie, cheat, smoke, dance, or covet your neighbor's stuff. Oh yeah, I just thought of one more. Humor thy father and mother. One of Moses' best helpers was Joshua, who was the first Bible guy to use spies. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the fence fell over on the town. After Joshua came David. He got to be king by killing a giant with a slingshot. And he had a son named Solomon who had about 300 wives and 500 porcupines. And my teacher says he was wise, but that doesn't sound very wise to me. <laughs> After Solomon, there were a bunch of major league prophets. One of these was Jonah, who was swallowed by a big whale and then barfed up on the shore. <laughs> there were also some minor league prophets, but I guess we don't have to worry about them. After the Old Testament came the New Testament. Jesus is the star of the new. He was born in Bethlehem in a barn. I wish I had been born in a barn too because my mom is always saying to me, close the door, were you born in a barn? And it would be nice to say, as a matter of fact, I was. <laughs> During his life, Jesus had many arguments with sinners like the Pharisees and the Republicans. Jesus also had 12 opossums. The worst one was Judas Asparagus. <laughs> Judas was so evil that they named a terrible vegetable after him. 
Jesus was a great man. He healed many leopards and even preached to some Germans on the mount. But the Democrats and all those guys put Jesus on trial before Pontius the Pilate. Pilate didn't stick up for Jesus. He just washed his hands instead. Anyways, Jesus dies for our sins, came back to life again. He went up to heaven, but will one day be back at the end of the aluminum. His return is foretold in the book of Revolution. That's the Bible through the eyes of a child. Well, it seemed apropos to begin today's message on somewhat of a lighter note, but although that story was meant to bring a smile to our lips, the words we're about to study today are meant to bring serious consideration to our souls. Today, as you know, is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent, the word comes from the Latin adventus, which means coming. And that is a Latin translation of the Greek word perusia. Anybody recognize that word, perusia? It means the appearance of our Lord, the coming of our Lord Jesus, which points to his second coming. So traditionally, it's the day we recall and rehearse many of the historical prophecies of the hope of Christ's coming. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and cannot help but experience the somber minor key in which it's encompassed. And we can relate to Israel's lament. It's a tangible reminder of our own personal longing for Christ's return in order to make things right and to make things new. In times like the ones we are now living in and experiencing, we feel the weight of the prayer Thy kingdom come. Maranatha, even so come, Lord Jesus. And we long for the day of Jesus' return in which Israel will finally proclaim, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and truly mean it as Jesus testified that they would one day. Those familiar words once rang out as Christ entered into Jerusalem, if you remember correctly, on the first Palm Sunday, right? During his first advent. And unfortunately, those cries were empty cries. For five days later, the Jewish leaders would have Jesus crucified and one man would die for the sake of an entire nation. But more than a nation, a universe how fickle the crowd was at that first advent. How blind and unprepared the people. Yet they had been warned, hadn't they? Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. And that's what we're going to look at today. A few verses out of chapter 4. The prophet Malachi's words, we know now through hindsight, were to be the final prophetic words spoken to the nation of Israel for a period of, get this, 400 years until John the Baptist came on the scene. Now that's a long time for God to be silent, isn't it? That's a long time for people to think about their spiritual condition, 400 years. That's a long time to consider the choices that we have at hand. That's a long time to wait for a promise to come true. It's also time enough for people to procrastinate 
and to put off the inevitable until it's too late. It's enough time for people to forget and put these things out of sight, out of mind. So when I read the closing verses of Malachi's message to the nation of Israel, which contain unmistakable parallels, by the way, and pointed applications to the church of this century, I can't help but think of the relevant words of the Apostle Peter, which we would do well to take into consideration. You could, if you want to follow with me, it's in 2 Peter and chapter 3. Hold your finger in Malachi 4, because that's what we're going back to. But 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Peter writes, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere way of mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days that mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintained this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall away from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. A lot of words there. Some people may call those words fire and brimstone type words, scriptures, right? Here's the point. God's kingdom will be restored. You can count on it. You can plan for it. Don't ignore it. And in that day, it will have a personal effect on everyone in this room. And the choices that we make today concerning Jesus Christ will determine which it will be for you. What kind of personal effect it's going to have on you, whether it will be a day of regret or a day of rejoicing. Now, my purpose today as we look at Malachi 4 
The first three verses is to urge you with all the seriousness and sincerity that I can muster to make the decision that will put you on the side of rejoicing. Okay? Because, friends, the day is coming. We just read about it, didn't we? And when the kingdom is restored, only those who are in a right relationship with Christ will rejoice in that day. Now, you might think, wow, this is going to be a heavy-duty message here. On the first Sunday of Advent, think about what Israel was experiencing when these scriptures were in the back of their mind, when Malachi had been had prophesied 400 years earlier and they had been waiting all this time for Messiah to come. It was a dark day. Look at, I'd like you to look at Malachi 4, verse 3 verses, if you would. I want you to note that most of the early manuscripts and editions of the Hebrew Bible, by the way, Malachi 4 is treated as a continuation of Malachi 3. There's no division, no chapter division there. It just continues right on. There's only three chapters in the Hebrew Bible of Malachi. Malachi 4, 1 to 3, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evil, every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, that would be bad if it ended right there, wouldn't it? And this is first Sunday of Advent, which is supposedly the theme of hope. There's not much hope there, is there? Ah, continue on in verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. There's your hope. See, when the day of God's restoration arrives, there's going to be two responses here. Which one will encompass you here? The first one or the second? Is it going to be a day of regret for you or a day of rejoicing and dancing and celebration and skipping about like cows from a stall? See, a lot of times you can't get to the good news until you go through the bad news first. So that's where we're going to start here. That's where Malachi starts. For those who are running from God, the restoration of his kingdom will be a day of great regret. Verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. This is real, folks. This is no joke. This is not a myth. This is not just words in a book. This is the word of God. The spirit-breathed words of God. The day which Malachi describes here is a time referred throughout the scriptures by the phrase, the day of the Lord, which designates God's decisive intervention in history for judgment. In addition to judgment, however, the day of the Lord is also connected with the promise of restoration and blessing in many, many contexts. So the ultimate culmination of this day seems to find its fulfillment in the return of Jesus Christ. Now the scary part of all of this, however, is that no one knows the day or the hour, do we? 
when he will return. Therefore, everyone needs to prepare themselves right now by receiving God's offer of grace through a personal faith relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? And that is the only thing that will preserve you and me from what Malachi paints as the absolute worst day anyone has ever or ever will experience. Or as the children's book character Alexander put it, a no good, very bad day. So friends, let's not brush this off, shall we? Because Malachi says it's going to be a day of certainty. Verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, says Malachi. It's going to happen. The Hebrew term indicates imminency, proximity, impendency, expectancy, finality. All of those things are wrapped up in that word, behold. Those are all fancy words to say that it's surely going to come to pass and it can come at any time. God has given us his word on the subject over and over and over again. Listen to the warning of another messenger of God who prophesied about 200 years prior to Malachi. If you've got your finger in Malachi 4, you could turn back and find, if you would, Zephaniah. Zephaniah, the first chapter. That's one of those minor league prophets that we talked about earlier. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7, just the first part of the verse. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near. Skip down to verse 12. And it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Verse 14, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. Verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. It will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. That's not a great picture, is it? But it's a day of certainty, and it begs the question in every single one of us, what are we trusting in to save us from that day? It's not just us that have to ask that question. It's everyone else in the world. And that's why we're here to warn, prophetically warn, and then to give the hope of Jesus Christ and the gospel of salvation, which we talked about last time, right? It's the power of God for salvation. For those who are not on board with Jesus, what possible thing can save them from that day? So it'll be a day of certainty. It's also going to be a day of severity. Back in Malachi 4, in the second part of verse 1. 
and all the arrogant and every evil doer will be chaff, he says. You know, when that day arrives, everything that offends God will be purged out of the kingdom completely, blown away. Now, right now in the kingdom, you know what's happening? The wheat and the tares are growing up together. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13. And they look very much alike. In any given church, regardless of the denomination, there are true believers and there are those who only say they believe. Only God knows which is which because only God can see the heart. People can hide. People can pull the wool over everyone's eyes, including their own. But in the final analysis, no one and nothing, Malachi says, even remotely connected with unrighteousness will be spared in that day. No one will be able to hide. And Jesus explained this in the parable that he told in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 in verse 37, Jesus said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and all those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Notice in Malachi 4 and verse 1 that those who will be judged are described as arrogant. The basic idea behind this word is what? Pride, right? It's pride a sense of self-importance which is often exaggerated to include willful defiance and rebellion. And that, friends, is really the reason people don't receive Christ. Pride. They cannot fathom admitting that they have a need, the need of a Savior. That's what kept me from receiving Christ before I came to Him. I didn't need a Savior. That is why God never pulls any punches when it comes to his attitude toward pride. He despises it, the Bible says. It was the very sin which drove Satan into rebellion, which caused him to fall from heaven. And there are at least three aspects to pride. Number one is rebellion. You know what that says? Rebellion basically is this. I won't do it. I won't do it. Self-exaltation is the second aspect. And that says this. I'll do it my way. And then the third aspect of pride is presumption. Well, I know it's wrong, but I'll do it anyway. And God is opposed to every single one of those aspects, it says in the Bible. Let's read Jeremiah 50, verses 31 to 32. We won't do it right now. But in 1 Peter, again, Peter writes these words, all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the God's mighty hand that he may lift us up in due time. 
The truth of Malachi's message was a rude awakening to the popular opinion of his day. They viewed the arrogant and the proud as those who prospered in this life. Is that not the widely accepted concept today? Is it not? Of our own society? The prophet Zephaniah's words against the pride of the nation's rebelliousness sound a relevant and haunting warning to the current global situation. In Zephaniah, go back to Zephaniah again, in chapter 2, and in verse 15, this is the exalted city which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am, and there was no one besides me. How she has become a desolation, a resting place for beasts. Everyone who passes by her will hiss and wave his hand in contempt. Zephaniah is speaking about, speaking about a people and a nation that was against Israel in the Old Testament, but that character trait smacks of any nation that is against God today. The same thing. Verse chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. In verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. You think, oh, there it is again. Fire and brimstone, bad news. But there's good news in the midst of it. Just go back to chapter 2. And look at the first three verses. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord. Here's the counsel. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. The day's coming. It's a day of certainty. It's a day of severity. And for the arrogant ones that are mentioned here, it will be a day of intensity. Malachi chapter 4, again, in verse 1 says that that day is coming and I will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Every evildoer, Malachi says, literally will be blown away like dust when faced with God's final judgment. You know what chaff is, right? Chaff is that unusable part of the grain that lasts only seconds when thrown into a blazing furnace and it burns up quickly, really fast. Someone once told me that they saw a T-shirt at the mall years ago that had this written on it. I love eternal damnation. That's what it said on the T-shirt. Now, I'm not sure if that was the name of a band or, or whatever, but seriously, friends, some people have no idea, and especially who it is, that they're dealing with. 
They think all of these verses that I'm reading are a bunch of fairy tales. That it's a joke. But it's not. People who now think that evil is something to celebrate and advertise on t-shirts will not be able to disguise themselves or deliver themselves when God's day finally comes. The intensity and the finality of that day will completely eradicate all evil from God's kingdom and it will leave them, it says here, neither root nor branch, according to Malachi. Meaning God's going to make a complete end of evil from one end to the other. Evil both hidden and exposed. It will be no more. And because of this, some people have surmised that their souls will be annihilated and therefore they will never experience the pain of eternal punishment. But friends, Scripture speaks repeatedly of the conscious eternal existence of the souls of both the wicked and the righteous. Those who die without Christ, the Scripture says, will experience an eternal fiery punishment, a burning sense of emptiness, infinitely more intense than any depression one can possibly imagine and the pain of being completely away from God's presence. Talk about darkness. And Jesus himself described this as a place of, quote, outer darkness, where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Not a pretty picture. My daughter, when she was young, she used to call that the fireplace. Now, I don't think Jesus was being melodramatic to you. Those are his words. I think he grieved deeply over the fact that people would ignore him and dismiss his words as mere exaggeration. It pains me to stand here and even read these scriptures and preach them because it makes me sound like, wow, what's gotten up inside of you today? But the fact is, is that Jesus grieves over this, and we should too. In fact, there are probably those of you who are sitting here right now, this morning, and you're thinking to yourself, I don't want to hear this. I didn't come to church to hear this. I have a hard time buying all of this anyway. Well, the fact is, one day it won't seem so far-fetched, my friends. And we don't know when that day is. And the way that it's going, it might not be that far off. But in that day, you may wish that you handled this day a lot differently. We need, as Jesus so graciously challenged us, to have ears to hear. And my question is, do you? Do you have ears to hear? Are you really listening? In his book, When You're All Out of Noodles, interesting title, Ken Jones writes about a lesson he learned one day at the office. He says, when I walked into my office, I noticed something I had never seen before. It was round, about the size of a dessert plate, and plugged into a wall. 
It was giving out this constant noise. It wasn't a loud noise, just constant. Continual. He said, what in the world is that thing? He thought as he stopped to stare at it. Finally, he asked the receptionist about it. She said, quote, it's an ambient noise generator. Seen those? You can actually get them on your computer. You can just set your computer and you can choose your ambient noise. Waves crashing against the, store, you know, the shore, white noise, pink noise, birds chirping, crickets chirping, and you can mix them all together so that it's this background noise that's going on. It's an ambient noise generator. And she said, it's, if it's too quiet in here, we can distinguish the voices in the counseling offices and we want to protect their privacy, so we bought these noise generators to cover the voices. Makes sense, right? Noise to cover noise. Her explanation made perfect sense to this man, but it doesn't have to be loud. He thought to himself, doesn't it have to be louder than the conversation in order to mask it? She said, no. Just the constancy of the sound tricks the ear so that what is being said can't actually be distinguished. And they work. If you've ever been in an office that has one, you know that they work. Pretty clever, wouldn't you say? No wonder we strain to hear what God is trying to say to us. Constancy of sound. That's why we strain to hear what God's saying to us. Little noises. Soft, inward, ambient thoughts and fears and attitudes that trick our ears, the ears of our souls, and masks the still, small voice of God. So let me ask you, it begs the question, what is it that's making God's voice indistinguishable to you? iTunes, iPhones, email, YouTube, texting, messaging, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Netflix, Reddit, Pinterest, LinkedIn, TikTok, Whisper, constancy of sound. You getting the drift? All of these things, this continual din of the world's white noise, that's what's behind the eighth grade girl who succumbs to the pressure of her peers. It's behind what happens to the regret-filled couples who opt for calling it quits instead of calling on Christ to save their marriage. It's behind what happened to Pilate when he pronounced sentence on Jesus after admitting three times, not once, not twice, but three times, that he found no guilt in him. And even after his wife sent a message to him that she heard in a dream that he should have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered, she said, greatly in a dream because of him. And yet, it says in Luke 23, verse 23, but the crowd shouted louder and louder for Jesus' death. And then it says this, and their voices prevailed. And Pilate didn't distinguish God's voice because of the constancy of noise that was in his ear. My friends, God isn't silent. We're just not hearing him because there's too much ambient noise going on in our lives. 
And no one has to experience the day that Malachi describes here as, as a devastating fire. We don't. On the contrary, for those who hear the words of warning, who have not allowed the din and the noise of the world and the voice of the devil to distract them, the coming day of the Lord's return will not be like a fiery furnace at all, which consumes, but it will be like a rising sun, which brings warmth and joy to your life. Isn't that what you'd rather have? It will be as refreshing and as healing as the first day of a long-awaited vacation on a perfect July morning. Can you picture that in your mind now? Enough of the fire. Let's talk about the nice warm sun on the beach, right? No bugs, no bitter wind, no stress, no agenda, no anxiety, no sorrow, no pain, no worries. For those who are far from God, the restoration of his kingdom will be a day of great regret. But for those who are right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, the restoration of his kingdom will be a day of great rejoicing. Amen? Verses 2 and 3. But you who fear my name, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. I love that. Joy is at the heart of God's plan for his people. Somebody say amen for that. Amen. Don't miss the direct address here. But for you who fear my name, he speaks directly and personally and intimately to those who are his. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go free, leaping like joy, for joy, like calves let out to pasture, the living Bible says. Here's how I would translate it. And you will go out free, jumping for joy like a class of fifth graders let out of school for the summer. Or maybe you'll rejoice like Chuck, a person who truly experienced an inkling of this joy of which Malachi speaks. Let me tell you about Chuck. I read this in a book by a pastor whose best friend was Chuck. He says, the first close friendship I ever had began when I was 15 years old. And Chuck and I went through high school and college together and we double dated together and got rejected together. And we were confidants and counselors and chums through every important event of life. Several years ago, he says, Chuck called to tell me that he had cancer. The initial prognosis was very good, although he did have to undergo difficult treatment. In typical fashion, Chuck shaved his head before the chemotherapy began, covered it with glue, sprinkled it with gold glitter, and walked around the house in his underwear calling himself Chemo Man. Get that picture in your head. Chuck and I lived more than 2,000 miles apart at this time, but we talked every single Saturday morning during the time he was undergoing his treatment. The chemotherapy destroyed, absolutely destroyed his appetite, and he was unable to keep food down because he came, became so gaunt and emaciated that he was almost unrecognizable 
even to his children. And at one point an infection set in and his condition was briefly touch and go because the chemotherapy had so weakened his immune system. But Chuck pulled through and eventually he completed treatment. Chemo man had prevailed. A month later, Chuck had his first post-treatment checkup. And he called me that night and the cancer was back at levels as high as they had been before the treatment. Being a doctor himself, he knew that the return of the cancer this strongly, this quickly, could only mean that he was going to die. It was a death sentence. The writer says, I was numb. When I went to bed that night, I couldn't even pray. It's some mistake, I protested. They'll find out it's okay. And I marveled at how quickly denial sets in. At 6.30 the next morning, Chuck called again. He says, you won't believe this. He said, someone in the lab had mistakenly switched his results with those of another patient who had not yet even been through treatment. And it turned out that Chuck's cancer was gone and has not reappeared these many years later. Now just put yourself in that guy's shoes. I'm going to live, my friend said. I'm going to see my kids grow up. I'm going to grow old with my wife. I'm going to live. And for a few moments, he says, we just wept on the phone like a couple of characters out of a Hallmark commercial. Chuck told me he was filled with a gratitude he had never known before. He couldn't stop touching his kids or hugging his wife. Things that had bothered him before faded into utter insignificance. He was going to live and suddenly he did not know intellectually but actually experienced the truth that life is a gift. Not just intellectual knowledge. He experienced it. We don't earn life. It's a gift. You can't control it. You can't take a moment of it for granted. Every tick of the clock is a gift from God. Every tick of the clock is a gift from God. Every day is a day in which we can find joy as a follower of Christ. Amen? Psalm 31, 7. I am overcome with joy because of your unfailing love, for you have seen my troubles and you care about the anguish of my soul. So for those who are in a right relationship with God through faith in Christ, the restoration of his kingdom will be a day of great rejoicing. So Malachi says, first, it will be a day of unlimited vitality. For those of you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. This verse, indeed this phrase, is pregnant with meaning and application. The Son of Righteousness, it's not used anywhere else in the whole Bible, in the Scripture. Some translations capitalize it as a reference to Christ, the Messiah, who is the light of the world, the bright morning star, as it says in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, And the sunrise from on high who shall visit us and shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace, as it says in Luke chapter 1. 
It is Christ alone who will bring physical and moral and material and spiritual restoration to the nation of Israel. And he will bring salvation and healing to all men and women who humble their pride and receive him in faith. Because he is the Lord, our righteousness. Amen? All who come to him are protected and provided for under the shelter of his wings, he is our security. He is our refuge and our strength and he is our joy. Others translate this phrase to refer to the day of the Lord's return, which will be accompanied by restoration and the spiritual revitalization. So whether or not you take it as a direct reference to the Messiah himself or an indirect one to the day of his coming, the end result is still the same. When Jesus returns at the end of the age, it will not be for judgment to those who are his sons and daughters. It's going to be for joy, for healing, and for eternal life, physically as well as spiritually. Amen? So you don't have to fear judgment if you're in Christ. And that is truly the healing that we seek, isn't it? His salvation brings light and glory to all who receive it now. Now is the acceptable time, the scripture says. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That has always been God's desire toward his people. Although there are huge portions of the Old Testament scripture which talk about coming judgment, there is also an abundance of words describing the promise and the hope of restoration in Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, for example, and you know um, this verse, these verses, probably by heart. In Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your hearts. Aren't those great words? Although they were spoken to the nation of Israel specifically, they have application to every single person on the face of the earth to come to Christ as well. God doesn't have bad plans for people but he desires that all would come to faith in Jesus Christ and experience his blessing and his healing and restoration. And he does say, if you seek me with all of your heart, I will let you find me. I'll let you find me. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3. Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. I call this the spiritual 911, okay? This is Jeremiah 33, 3. Just remember that. Call to me, call to me, and I will answer you and tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Verse 14, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. 
In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Listen, friends, when Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday, many thought that that day had arrived. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, even a donkey's colt. This was a scripture prophesying that day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And they thought, oh, the kingdom is here. But the only glitch was that as the nation as a whole was about to reject him, why? Because he wasn't what they had in mind. Just as people do today. He didn't come to physically overthrow an oppressive Roman government at that time, did he? He came to offer grace, to offer the gospel, to offer forgiveness and salvation to the soul, an internal kingdom. One day he will return. And my friends, the government will rest on his shoulders. They will. Physically, as well as spiritually. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace, Isaiah chapter 9 says. Classic Christmas passage. One day, but not yet. And for everyone who has personally received him, the day of that coming is going to be a day of unlimited vitality, says Malachi. As one scholar put it, there will be understanding without error, memory without forgetfulness. Wow, that would be great, wouldn't it? Thought without distraction, love without simulation, sensation without offense, universal health without sickness. You won't long for satisfaction then. It will be given to you. It doesn't get any better than that. And it will be a day of unleashed liberty, as it says in Malachi 4, verse 2. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Hey, for Gentiles and Jews alike, no more. No more fears to enslave us. No enemy to threaten us or depress us, no pain to debilitate us, no temptation to imprison us, no virus to distress us or divide us. That's what it says. Son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, in its wings. Now, although that kind of liberty can be ours now spiritually in Christ, in the day when Christ returns, it's going to be a physical reality as well. That's what Revelation chapter 21 says. Listen to what these wonderful words say of the promise of what's coming. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 1. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. 
And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. I don't know about you, but I long for that day. And he who sits on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Guess who those people are? He who thirsts, right? He who thirsts, Jesus says, come to me and I will give him water to drink that will well up inside of him. You really never will thirst again. For the believer in Christ, his, his return will be a day of unlimited vitality, of unleashed liberty, and finally it will be a day of ultimate victory. Ultimate victory, verse 3. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet, on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Here's the great reversal. Here's the great turnover. A colossal and complete turnover. Whatever struggle we experience now in the world, we will never experience again after the day that Christ returns. Anybody looking forward to that? Evil will no longer have any influence. Every immoral law will be annulled. Every oppressive government will be deposed. Every false religion will be exposed. Every demonic power will be cut down. Every enemy will be vanquished. They will tread upon, they will be tread upon, according to the Old Testament custom, in times of war when the victor put his foot on the neck of the enemy as a symbol of complete and utter subjugation. That's going to happen. For those who are in Christ will experience that when Christ is victor. That is what will happen when Christ returns. Evil has, up until now, been operating and allowed to operate on a long leash. I don't know why God's allowing that. You don't know why God's allowing that, but he is. But in the day of Christ, that leash will reach its end. 1 Corinthians 15 says, After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having put down all enemies of every kind, for Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. No more death. Are you ready for that day? If you are, it should have an effect on this day. Because no one need face the day with fear. Jesus came the first time so that all who believe in him and receive him now as their Lord and Savior would not have to fear the day of judgment when he returns again. Why? Because we are no longer as Christians under judgment. John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and he does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. And Isaiah mimics that and, and kind of echoes that back in the Old Testament. In chapter 25, 
It's actually a pre-echo. It's a prophecy. And Isaiah says this, In Jerusalem, the Lord Almighty will spread a wonderful feast for everyone around the world. It will be a delicious feast of good food with clear, well-aged wine and choice beef. In that day, he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. In that day, the people will proclaim, this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation that he brings. Those are Isaiah's words. They're going to come to pass. You want to be part of that day, right? Someone wrote, there is a being in this universe who wants you to live in sorrow. And it's not God. We have greatly underestimated the necessity of joy. Nehemiah said to his grieving congregation, this day, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn, do not weep, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is strength. Its absence creates weakness. True joy, as it turns out, comes only to those who have devoted their lives to something greater than personal happiness. It comes to those who have devoted their lives to Jesus, the source of full joy. Amen? The psalmist says this, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He didn't say yesterday was God's day. How happy I was then. Nor does he say tomorrow will be the great day. I'll just endure this until then. No, he says this day with all its shortcomings is the great day for those who are in Christ Jesus because we know that day is coming. It can have an effect on this day now. Our judgment was poured out upon Jesus at the cross. He took it willingly. Believe and receive that truth. He is who he said he was. And we can trust our eternal destiny to him and find joy today. This is the day that the Lord has made. And you know what you need to do, don't you, if you haven't done it already? Cry out to him. And let me urge you in the most basic way I know how. If you haven't already done it, choose to follow Christ. Choose to follow Christ. And if you've already made that choice, then for the kingdom's sake, follow him and rejoice. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us the warning and you have given us the promise. Both of those things are all wrapped up in the advent of Jesus Christ, both his first and his second. Nobody would have even guessed back in the day when, when you first appeared that there would be another appearance necessary, another coming. I pray, Father, that we would not be so naive, that we would recognize the promises that we have in Scripture and live in them now by placing our faith and trust in you, Lord Jesus Christ, and by ordering our lives appropriately.
There is hope. And hope is here in the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Help us not only to grab onto it ourselves, but to give it away to others as well. For Jesus' sake, I ask it.